This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow and this is the Goop Podcast where we bring together visionaries, scientists, healers, artists, and seekers. I'm so grateful that I get to interview these extraordinary thought leaders and share their wisdom with you. And I love listening to the conversations that are led by my co-host and dear friend, Cleo Wade. Cleo is a beautiful poet and author. I deeply admire her and the way she keeps her heart open to the world. Together, we believe that engaging in open-minded, honest, and sometimes difficult conversations has the power to change our lives. All right, over to Cleo. Today, I had a really special guest come on the podcast. I got to sit down with Cheryl Strayed, the New York Times bestselling author of Wild, Brave Enough, Torch, and Tiny Beautiful Things, which is now a show on Hulu. We started our conversation talking about Dear Sugar, the beloved advice column that kind of started it all. I had a lot of questions for Cheryl. After all, she is the queen of good advice. We talked about parenting, babies, and teens. We talked about finding courage and doing really, really scary things. And we talked about vulnerability. Of course, Cheryl has so much wisdom to share about all she's learned in loss, connection, and self-forgiveness. So let's get right to this conversation with Cheryl Strait. Where are you now? Are you in Portland? I'm in Portland. I'm in my basement in Portland, hiding out from the chaos that is my life. And I am just, yeah, really excited and busy, 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 busy with the launch of this show, Tiny Beautiful Things. I want to talk about it. I'm, I'm so excited because I've been waiting for so long. I remember when you guys first started talking about it and working yeah. on it and, and the kind of all the different iterations in the creative process. And then when I found out that you were going to be in the writer's room, I mean, it was just, I don't know. I mean, I'm like a fan. Thank I, you. Cleo, um, that means everything to me. You know, I'm a fan of yours as well. And yeah, like so many paths worth walking. It's been a jagged and twisty one. <laughs> and yet here we are, you know, at the mountaintop. And what an experience it's been. It's it's really exciting. And you're right. I was in the writer's room, which was so fun. We had a Zoom room. So I was able to join from Portland. What is it like for you? Because I feel that we go through periods where we get to do a lot of stuff that's new for me, at least I go through long periods of time where I'm not trying anything new. That's scary. And then when I do, I end up doing 30 things in a row that are scary, or I'm trying for the first time, or I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. And then I wanted to do it and I tried it. So what is it like, you know, you know, you know how to do what you do so well, because you're such an incredible, you know, memoirist and writer and advice giver and, 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 and also you're writing seminars. I mean, what's really interesting that where my mind first went is that actually, you know, you said I'm a good advice giver, but, but, you know, when I said yes to, to doing the Dear Sugar column, I ha- had no experience 
writing an advice column. And I wasn't even really much of a reader of advice columns. Like it wasn't like, oh yeah, this is like what I've been dreaming for all my life. I was, I was a writer. I write books. You know, that's what I do. My first book is a novel called Torch. My second mm-hmm. book is a memoir called Wild. I had just finished writing Wild when I was asked to take over the Dear Sugar column. And but when I say just finished writing Wild, I mean, I sent the first draft off to my editor. So I was like waiting to hear, like get notes you like you always do. Yeah. And Steve Almond, who is my dear friend now, but he was really just an acquaintance at the time. We'd met at a writer's conference and we'd read each other's work. He emailed me and said, will you take over this column? It it doesn't pay anything at all and nobody reads it and it's anonymous. <laughs> so you'll get no credit. And I was like, yes, yeah, sign me up. And, you know, and I then immediately was like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. How could I possibly give advice? And, and, and what was cool about it is it was just exactly what you were saying, like that new, scary thing. And I ended up finding my way along. And, you know, I think so much of my life, I wanted to say, I almost said career, but I think life is the better word for it. So much of my life. I don't, I don't, I can't separate my writing from my life. My writing is me. It's obviously a career too, but like so much of my career has been that kind of following the path where it leads me. After Wild was published, I began essentially an accidental career as a public speaker. Did you think that after Wild also you would have, you know, created this new iteration of speakers and in the self-help space, you know, you were so different. And did you, did you expect that you would kind of have become a kind of self-help kind of go-to for people? Makes me feel like the people who do just have a really good picker for what is actually helpful, which is a really <laughs> honest person who believes in love and all the things that come with it, like walking towards it, letting it go, creating boundaries. Yeah. And yet the, I also am like grittier and more grounded. Let me tell you this, that I was so surprised when Tiny Beautiful Things came out to find the book in the self-help section of, sto- of bookstores. I was like, what? And same with Wild. But when I was writing Wild, it never occurred to me once that people would read it and be like, oh, I'm so inspired. Like, I didn't think I wow. was writing an inspiring. T- I wasn't trying to make people feel a certain way. And that's been true all of my writer writing life. Like, I've really tried to write from that place of deep truth that is gritty and grounded, that is honest and is very emotional. And I guess what that ends up being in the end is it feels transformative to people in a way that that can be, yeah, like I'm, I, I had no idea that I would be at all categorized as self-help in, in any of those ways. But what's really interesting too, is I want to say it, it really began with my first book, Torch, which is a novel. It's fiction. Yeah. It's, but yet it is also, it is a story about grief. It's a story about family and relationships and being broken and not knowing how to find your way forward. And even just when that book was published, people would say, this really helped me. I understand. And so I think that it's not so much that I'm trying to write self-help as it is that I'm writing always about very emotional things that are very vulnerable and close to our hearts. And people experience that in a very personal way that, that feels, that feels like self-help. When I found out that you would so graciously do this podcast with me, I took your book, which actually I have an OG copy of it. Look at you. I took your book, two copies of it to the beach with two of my girlfriends for the day. And and what I'm also really excited about, and I really want to talk more about the show that's coming out on Hulu in a couple of days also, but it's really cool that it's going to kind of be unleashed to an entirely new generation of people too, which I'm so excited about because that is the really amazing thing about when things come to television. When was Tiny Beautiful Things published? 20- It'll be 11 years in July since it was first published. That that new copy is the 10th anniversary edition, but but yeah, it'll be 11 years in July. It was, pu- I mean, the thing about Tiny Beautiful Things is kind of weird is that it was published just a few months after Wild. So I had two books come out basically back to back in 2012. And of course, Wild ended up being such a hurricane of an experience that, you know, Tiny Beautiful Things got a little overshadowed by it because it was like, 
you know, the book came out and and people found their way to it. I'm not saying that's not the case, but it was just very strange to have two books come out so close together. Yeah. Well, I, my girlfriends and I were reading it and I was like, what do you feel it is? Cause we were both saying that we were kind of crying in the midst of some of the advice you we were giving and things that had truly nothing to do with anything we've ever gone yeah. through. And I was saying, I was like, and also, why do you think it works? Because also you, I would say, and, and this is very much my just personal opinion, but you kind of ushered in an entire kind of genre of ways that people write and do this thing. And it's it's actually really hard. And to do, I mean, I, even the first time I really even heard the term radical empathy was from, from your writing and, and, and how it could be kind of contextualized to today. And I think now we like kind of tiptoe into this place of like toxic positivity, which I think people try to call radical empathy. And, Mm-mm. and, and, and I think that there's this kind of whole new genre of writers that were born out of your style of writing and to me anyway. But I was saying, I was like, why do you think that, like, how do you think that Cheryl just like got it? Like, how do you, what do you think it is? And my friend said this really interesting thing. She was like, I think her ability to make all of the advice and offering and not a desire to control is what makes it actually so, even when you're reading the hard stuff, so nourishing. And I really thought that was such an amazing way to describe your style of writing, I think, as a whole, even if for Wild, I felt that it is also just, it was so, there were parts that were so hard in there and, and, you, and you really invited the reader into your pain and and, and you do in, in Tiny Beautiful Things also, but you do it in a way where you're holding them. You don't allow them to almost fall into the bottomless pits we all have in her own kind of directions. And how do you find that you can walk that line so that you can kind of do the share without it being the overshare and navigate the trauma without it being the trauma bond or the trauma dumping. Mm-hmm. And because you're really, to me, one of the only writers who can write in the this way and, and it doesn't cross those lines for me, which I, I'm very sensitive to as a reader. Yeah. Well, I think I'm so honored by that word offering because I do think that that's what I do as sugar. And I still write the Dear Sugar column, by the way. I write it a monthly mm-hmm. Dear newsletter. Sugar letter. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and what I think of it is this in offering, meaning I'm not telling, if I, in, in, in so many of the letters, I do tell a story from my own life that in some way, connects either directly or indirectly to the to the situation that's been presented to me in the letter that's been written and i never am telling that story to say oh well you know you you think you've got a bad let me tell you about my story you know how some people yeah, can do yeah, that yeah, and yeah, and yeah. you feel diminished by it and what i do is i really genuinely genuinely believe in the power of story to illuminate the human condition and so when i am telling a story from my life it is an offering that is offered because I think it will help the person who's written to me see their own situation more clearly or more complexly. I also really always hold the letter writers in in what I call unconditional positive regard. Mm -hmm. And to me, what that means at root is that I'm so not interested in judging you or condemning you or deciding that you've done a bad thing or a dumb thing but rather I'm interested in speaking very honestly to you with all the love in my heart and that I'm on your side and that I'm rooting for you and I'm in your corner. And I believe not only in you, but I believe that you have the capacity actually to answer all of your own questions. That my role isn't to tell you what to do, but to give you permission to know what you already know on your deepest level. Mm -hmm. Very often, it's that it's not that people are so, you know, bewildered. It's that they're scared. They're afraid. Yeah. Because it it's scary to know what you what you know, <laughs> because when you acknowledge what you know to be true, you have to act on it. You have to change your life. You have to change your mind. You have to say painful words out loud, or or make decisions that scare you. You know. And my job is to, to take your hand and to say. You are not alone in this journey. We all have to travel this way. 
if we are going to live evolved lives and I'm, and I'm going to be here with you and not just, I'm going to be here with you, but like, we're all here holding you. And that to me is, you know, that's, that's the kind of work I do. Like, that's what, that's how I approach the work. And, and it, and it, it, it does feel like an offering by the time at the end of every column, I, I feel that way. Like I'm holding out a platter that is, you know, everything I have to, to say about a situation that's been presented to me. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You're so amazing at kind of capturing the yearning beneath the question, because often we're yearning for something and it manifests in a situation. It's easier to ask a question about the situation than do the kind of deep dive into the yearning. But I guess I wonder, one thing that really strikes me about the advice you give is dear sugar is that you have this incredible ability to just arrive at the courageous thing. (laughs) You know, it's like, you have to leave. You have to, you know, you have to, you know, those things that people are really, it's so hard to do. Like, you know, you have to just, you know, thank them for what they were there for. You have to, and there's yeah. the place where that purgatory of maybe, or, or like, oh, like the, that we kind of land in you, you're very, I think so great at asking to do the thing that would be the catalyst for the, that would give them all the goodness and the change that they, that they would make in that moment. Mm-hmm. But how do you, is there a practice of how you landed there? Because so many of us just struggle with kind of like years of like, oh, maybe I should do this or maybe I shouldn't. And and, and are you good at doing that in your own life? Or you just are like, okay, it's clear to me, this is the change you have to make and I'm just going to make it. So I'm going to let this person go or break off this thing or move towards mm-hmm. this thing. And And it's those types of movements in the world are really hard to do. They are hard. And that's right. And and I never diminish that. Like, I think, however, that the harder thing by far is to live a life in which you're, you're confused and not happy and you're looking for something that's never going to be there. So, you know, I think that, that one of the things I say in, in the title column, tiny, beautiful things I have, I say, you have to be brave enough to break your own heart. And what that does mean is like allowing yourself to be clear about certain things. Much to my surprise, one of the most (laughs) well-read letters that I've written at Shaker is called The Truth That Lives There. And it's, I actually answered three letters in in this column, which I usually just answer one, but I, mm-hmm. I chose three because I have so many letters that say essentially the same thing. It's from somebody who's in a relationship with somebody who they love and have all kinds of, you know, good things to say about that person, but they want to leave. They, they don't want to stay in that marriage or that relationship any longer. And yet they're tormented because they're so afraid that if they simply say this thing, I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. I love you, but I want to go. They'll be bad people or that they'll never find love again or whatever. All of those fears we have. Right. And for, mm-hmm. so for me to say what I said essentially was wanting to leave is enough. You know, the way I landed on that, Cleo, was my own life, my own agony, my own suffering, my own being married in my 20s and realizing pretty much immediately that even though I absolutely loved my ex-husband and he is a wonderful human, I didn't want to be married to him. And the hell I put myself through because I couldn't let that one truth be true. And also the hell I put him through. 
You know, I, I had to come up with a reason that we had to break up. So I cheated on him. I regret that so much to the, to this day. And, and all of that could have been prevented if I had just said, I love you. And I, I, I shouldn't have gotten married to you because, or anyone, right. And like, that's just one example. The other is, I think, you know, we, we, we buy into these narratives. Like there's a letter, the ghost ship that didn't carry us, a man wrote to me saying, I don't know, you know, if I should be a father or not, I'm, I'm almost 40. Should I have a child or not? And I don't have any clarity around that. And what I said to him is essentially, you're probably not going to have clarity. What you're going to have is a decision and a life based on that decision. You know, you're going to either decide, even though I'm not sure, I think I do want to be a dad and we'll see how that goes. Or even though I'm not sure, and I think I don't want to be a dad and we'll see how that goes. You have two different, you have to make a choice knowing that there's not going to be some big magic bunny that, you know, hops up to you and says, here's exactly what you must do. Like so much of life is staying open to, I guess, our own be bewilderment. Yeah. you know, and to get clear about something else. And that is that you will love the life that you choose. And these are things I think that when I say I, I, I try to answer the questions that sit beneath the questions that are asked to me, that's what I, you know, I try to dig into that deeper territory in my answers. And I feel that so many people have found such profound healing and being able to connect with the ways in which you listen and then reflect back in those in, in your advice. And I guess I wonder in, in this world that I feel like we live in a world of a lot of communication and very little connection. And so in that, you know, there's, we're communicating all day long as in these things kind of fly at us from through our phones on the internet and email, and there's nonstop communication, but I think people feel lonelier than they've ever felt and, and and really disconnected from one another. And I feel that we're really kind of trying to find our way back, especially post pandemic. Do you feel that you're able to connect rather than just than purely communicate online? How are you finding that for yourself? And, and I guess also what advice would you have for others in, in kind of this time that I, I think is a really weird time? It's, it's, yeah. weird. it's really weird out there. Yeah, it is. And 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 being online and social media it makes that all more complex, you know. And and to me, here's what I figured out, at least so far, is you know, I I I think that that what what we see happening online are two things that seem that sometimes at face value seem like the same thing, but they're actually opposites. One of them is connection, that you actually connect with people you know, online, Dear Sugar exists because, you know, really yeah. it was the internet that made Dear Sugar. It was, I was writing that column anonymously as an online advice column. And the way it grew, it's called following is people said, you have to read this. Yeah. And it was about connection. It was about telling the truth about what it means to be human, being vulnerable, taking risks, you know, all of, speaking into the, those deep places. Right. And yet also what we see is sometimes what can seem like connection is really just a performance or an image or yeah. a presentation of an yeah. emotion rather than the emotion. Mm. And, you know, I think life is that way too, right? You go to yeah. a party and you're there in the room with some people who are posing and yeah. some people who are over in the corner, you know, crying and telling you about their divorce. And I don't know who you want to be with at that party but I'll always be in the corner <laughs> with the person who's saying the real thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that that's true wherever we go. And, and for me, like if, if you were to say like, what, it, you know, what advice do you have for me? You know, I want to connect more. I want to feel like that authentic sense of, of unity with others. I mean, it's such an easy thing and sometimes so hard to do, just be vulnerable, tell yeah. the truth about who you are and what you're feeling take the risk, you know, take the risk of saying like that one sentence that maybe makes your heart beat a little faster because it's the true thing rather than the thing that seems cool or interesting or like some sort of image that you want to put out. I'm so glad that you defined uh, vulnerability in, in your definition after you said it and, and said, tell the truth about who you are and how you're feeling because vulnerability like self-care or all these other words that became be, have become really popular culturally over the past 10 years, they start to mean a lot of different things. 
It's kind of how, you know, bell hooks encouraged us to define love, you know, to, yeah. to say, what are your principles around love? So that when you say it, you know what you're saying and you, and you know what you mean. And I think a lot of the time I hesitate to use the word vulnerability because it really is meaning a lot of different things to a lot of different people right now. Yeah. It can be performative. You're right. You know, I mean, yeah. and I, I mean, that's right. I know self-care too. I mean, I, I, I get really leery about that term too, even though I know what it means. Sometimes it can be like, well, self-care is just for a certain like class, economic class of people yeah, who totally. can afford to get like expensive spa treatments. And, you know, right. I think, you know, self-care. I mean, I, my long hike on the PCT, which physically hurt more than anything was the greatest self-care I ever did. Yeah. You know, self-care is not just, you know, luxury and listening to soothing music in a place that's, you know, smells like lavender. It no. can be that, but it, but I think real self-care is, is exactly what it says. Like, do, you know, doing what you need to do, taking care of yourself. It can be, you know, any number of things that don't like, it could be go, saying, you know, I feel good when I, when I bake, <laughs> you go yeah. bake a cake, that's self-care or taking and, a walk like I do it, every day. Yeah. I, I think it can have the the lightness or the depth that you need. And, and I yeah. think for so many, and then I've definitely felt this in my own life that it's self-care has um, been reckonings I've had, you know, self-care has looked like really working through or processing something that was, you know, really hard and difficult. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and it was unpleasant the whole time. <laughs> it was un and I was uncomfortable from start to finish. I wrote once if self-love says, I love you. Self-care says, show me It's oh, way yeah. that you, you show yourself love. And, and as we know, love is always good as in there's goodness woven yeah. in and wrapped around it, but it, it is, looks very different and it can be an angry kind of roar and it can be this kind of gentle lullaby and it can be all, everything in between and, and manifest in all these different ways. And, and I think self-care it, it, it also kind of can be, can be that way. Yeah, absolutely. I love that definition. Show me. I'm going to think about that. Okay. I want to talk tiny, beautiful things. And I love Catherine Hahn. Love what her. an amazing, amazing person to play and, and, and kind of create this with you. But this is kind of a, if correct me if I'm wrong, but this is going to be kind of a sliding doors version of your life. No? Yes. Yes. So here's here. Let me explain it. <laughs> you know, I knew Liz Tigelar is the, the creator and showrunner. From and little as fires soon as everywhere, right? Little fires everywhere. She's amazing. I love her. I mean, and I was in the writer's room too. And so I was, I just had with Liz and this team of amazing writers. And right from the start, I said to Liz, here's the thing. I don't think that it's a good move for us to make our sugar, our character of this TV show, like actually me, you know, I don't want to necessarily be like, hello, here's my marriage. And these are my kids. And I mean, that just feels like a reality TV show. Right. But I said, so this like, let's, let's make a fictional sugar. She's somebody who has some things in common with me, but most of them are in our past. And these things, we share these formative experiences. Our sugar has to have a mother who died young of cancer, like my mother did at the age of 45. Mm -hmm. Our sugar has to have an estranged relationship with an, a, an abusive father. She has to have gotten married and divorced young in her 20s, like I did. And, and she has to have grown up in a rural place working class and poor, like I did, because those things, not only did they form me and make me the person I am, but they're, they come up a lot in, in the advice I give in tiny, beautiful things. And so we, of course, use the letters in the show. And so I was like, they're not going to make sense if her backstory isn't essentially mine. So the amazing Catherine Hahn plays our Claire, who is sugar. She takes on the advice column in, in the season, in the show. And then we have flashback scenes to the yeah. her younger self and it's played by the amazing Sarah Pigeon. And some of those though were real scenes from your from your life as well. I mean because I know that you kind of took some of the bare like on paper yeah. this, I did this this happened to me this happened to me but some there's some exact dialogue from your history in yeah. beyond what's written in the book in the books obviously in, in dear your dear sugar calms but 
that yeah, way lots of it. I mean, that's what's so nuts is the stuff that Sarah Pigeon and she plays opposite Merritt Weaver, who plays Frankie, who is is mm. Sugar's mom, and Owen Painter, who plays her brother. There are so many scenes that the three of them act that really are straight from my life. And and like you said, not just from the book. Of course, I wrote about some of those things mm. that are in the book, but what would happen in the writer's room when we were discussing various episodes, Liz would say to me like, well, Cheryl, tell us, you know, what really happened? Like, tell us the story of how exactly did your mom tell you she had cancer or what, you know, what went down when, you know, you met your, your first husband and you first met his parents and those stories ended up in the show. So I cannot even tell you how it was to sit on set this you know, and watching these actors reenact scenes from, from my life. And of course I went through that experience with wild. That's exactly yeah. what Reese yeah. and Laura did. Laura Dern and Reese Witherspoon, yeah. of course, but it, it, you know, it never stops being a really surreal experience. How, how do you, is there anything you do to kind of process that? Or did you have any kind of rituals or specific ways of kind of giving yourself care as you're confronted with those things? Or was even if it was as simple as being like, I'm going to take it in for the day and kind of let it go that night with a bath or I don't know, how do you, you know, take that on? You know, a lot of just deep breaths. And and what I found myself feeling an awful lot, even in the the scenes that were really sad and hard to watch is that once they settle into me, I feel so overwhelmed with a sense of absolute gratitude and wonder, because I do think, you know, just if we focus on this, that singular fact of my mother dying so young of cancer, you know, I'll never get the thing that I want the most, which is for that to have not happened, to have my mother back. Right. Mm -hmm. But I've gotten the second best thing. And that is to make my mother alive, not just in me, but in the world. You know, that that I have had the opportunity to tell her story in my books, to tell her story in the movie Wild, to tell her story in the show, Tiny Beautiful Things. That is like, really, I'm so grateful and amazed by that. Yeah, that's amazing how you've alchemized this kind of um, your initial way of trying to do that. Because I remember reading and, and hearing you say before that through kind of the almost self-violent behavior that you had in your, you know, early twenties around that time with whether it was drugs or whatever, Mm -hmm. that was your way of saying my mom was here. Yeah. And to, to have done this kind of amazing healing work to transform or alchemize that energy, which was that essentially, even in that moment, you knew that your, your mother was so big and profound that you wanted that her legacy to be something loud that that others could hear and you got to do it and do it in a way that is so hopeful to others and 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 you know it's interesting because if you you know Oprah would has often said that you know when she kind of her format became about doing for others more and and actually wanting to help others rather than you know just that kind of interview formats like her whole life changed right and it's like when you took the worst thing that ever happened to you and made it your deepest offering, you mm. got to do exactly what you wanted, right? Which mm-hmm, is create mm-hmm. this legacy for her and give so much healing to, to other people. Yeah, it's really, it's so true. When I was in the deepest agony in the time after my mom died, you know, it was about self-destruction. Yeah. You know, I did what a lot of people do when they're in a lot of pain. They turn that violence inward. And and there was a way that I realized when I decided to hike the Pacific Crest Trail that that it was an act of love. That self-destruction was an act of love. I wanted to show the world that this very ordinary woman mattered. Mm-hmm. And and I had this awakening where I realized, gosh, that that is not, you know, that's not the way to show the world anything. And that's certainly not the way to honor my mom. And the only way we can honor the people who who love us truly or who loved us truly is to thrive yeah. and to live the mm-hmm. big, beautiful, wild lives that in, in, well, in my mother's case, that she raised me to live. And so, you know, to, to reverse that self-destruction and turn it into outward creation 
Wow. You're exactly right. You know, that I, I brought, I mean, I didn't realize it honestly until I started to publish work that was telling the truth about my grief and people were suddenly talking to me about, about their grief, you know, saying, I've never heard anyone say those words about how I feel. First of all, it, it, it made me feel less alone too, by consoling them and telling them they are not alone. I was also told that I was not alone. So it's like this wonderfully healing kind of loop. Right. And then also, as you say, like I had people, I have, I mean, people all over the world know my mom's name and that's a little gift just to hear that word in a stranger's mouth, my mother's name, that's an offering. And mm -hmm. I only got it because I offered, you know, the story of my grief and my love up to the world. And, and with, with such honesty and, you know, and I think that's the, what is so deeply felt in your writing is just that you're so honest. And, and I think that that's become harder to do in this, in the show, there's a lot of, I saw that there's a lot of storyline about between you and your, you, the Claire character and her teenage uh -huh. daughter. You do have a teenage daughter, Bobby. I do, Bobby. Um, and so how was that? Did you kind of go to her for advice on what would feel authentic for, <laughs> for the teen character? Oh, I didn't need advice. It's all, all the teenageness is on full display here in my home right before me. And I actually have two teenagers. I have a oh, son, yeah, Carver, who's son, 18. Carver. And my and my daughter Bobby, who's seventeen, and and other people in the writers' room also. Well, all of us were teenagers, and and other people also have teenagers, and so it was really it was really fun to write about this dynamic between Claire and her daughter. Her name is Frankie Ray. She's named after her grandmother, mm -hmm. but she goes by Ray. And it was so fun because it, it really did feel like we were writing a, a kind of ancient universal classic tale of that that deep deep love between this mother and daughter and also you know that deep conflict that so often arises between parents and their children at this age where the child it you know developmentally it's their job to say I'm going to be different from you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to always do what you want me to do. <laughs> and, and also you are really embarrassing to me. So <laughs> there, there was all this territory for, for humor. And, and, and also, you know, one of the things we really created and creating these characters is, you know, as, as I do as sugar, I'm always saying, look, we're, you know, we're, we're a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, we are complicated people. We're good and bad. And those things can exist alongside each other. We're messy and we're, you know, successful. We're thriving and we're failing all the time, all of us. And so you see this in this relationship between Claire and Ray, where Claire is always trying to be the good mother. And yet sometimes she doesn't say the right thing because, you know, she's human. Yeah. It, it's funny because I think with people who are so well known for having all the answers, we're like, wait, so Raising a teen's hard for you too. I'm sure you get this con this question a lot in, in interviews or in a panel or something where they're like, what advice would you give your teenage self? And my, re my response is always like, I don't even know what I could have heard. Um, because yeah. so much of that period of time in your life has to do with what you can actually like absorb. So you could give them the, oh, well, I would tell them that, give them a whole plan yeah. and they'd be like, shut up. Exactly. And so I always say, I would tell her she ends up okay. I was saying to someone who has teens recently, now that kids can like kind of look up everything or they're learning everything on TikTok when they're like 10, they don't need you for information. You know, you don't have to, you, you people are not going to have like the sex talk with their children. They, 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 as far as like what happens because they're going to look it up, I think. I had but sex they, talks with my kids when they were like five. So yeah, yeah before they could look it up. Well, smart. Yeah. And how'd it go? Oh, I highly recommend it. Like I'm a huge advocate for actually really having the sex talks quite young. And a lot of experts in the field also recommend this. So it's not just me. It's not just like sugar making this up. But what works about it is you can you can say things very factually and they're not really embarrassed by it. They might be amused by it. They might be curious about it, but they're not they're They don't have that sense of embarrassment or shame yet. And so you just yeah. say, okay, let's, I want to just tell you like how, you know, what sex is and not just reproduction, but sex, right. sex for pleasure and different kinds of sex and different combinations. And it's kind of amazing how effective it was, I think, to have those honest conversations. Then 
later when they did start to get older. And what I would do is that that's the other thing. My other advice, not just one talk that keep talking about it, like periodically, almost always when we were driving, they'd be strapped in their seats or in the back or whatever. I'd be like, okay, kids, let's talk about sex, you know, and, or let's talk about pornography. Let's talk about, you know, and fill in the blank. And there did get to be a point where they go, oh, mom, but you know, I have to say they're, I think really grateful for it because I did, I did inform them of a lot of things before they got informed by the internet or their friends. Well, and if you can become their confidant, then the information you just still is valuable. It's because then they, they understand the difference between asking someone who they trust and love about something or just finding out through this kind of random algorithm or research online. Yeah. You know, I remember when I, when I first had Memphis a couple of years ago, I was asked, I don't remember why this happens to people, but when you're a new mother, people will say, what is your advice for parenting? And I'm like, I don't fucking know. I'm like, (laughs) I, I just held this. I can't even like do the wrapping thing, you know, swaddling, you know? And so I failed at swaddling. Yeah. No, no. You did. At one point you're just like, I, I don't know. But I was, my thought was, is that children can handle honesty. I do too. And, and exactly. And, and especially when I say, like, I talked to my kids when they were that young, it's not like I tell them everything there's to know about yeah, sex, but course. you be- begin the conversation. And I think that that's really important. Same thing, honestly, with, with death and grief. When I first told my kids about my mom dying, you know, they were, they were like preschoolers. And what was so fascinating, they, they had questions and I answered them. And then we'd talk about it a few months later and they'd have other questions and I'd answer them. And, and the, you know, by not talking about things, that's how we make them taboo subjects. That's why people feel very confused, I think about the ways they feel, whether it be around sex or grief, because it's been this hush hush, let's keep it a secret and, you know, spill it all in one conversation when they're like 13 years old, which is far too late and it doesn't work. And, you know, I think that it's so important to, to begin talking about all the hardest things. And what happens is it really destigmatizes then those conversations when they maybe do need to come to you someday and, and, ask some hard things or reveal some hard things. You find that it's easier to give the advice than, than live the advice. Do you ever like kind of pause in a moment in your personal life and, and think, you know what I said to someone one day, if da, 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 da. So today I'm going to, I have that sometimes where I'm like, you know what? I freaking said, don't be <laughs> the reason somebody feels insecure or <laughs> whatever thing. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm like, let me send the text. I, I've said, I believe in apologies. I'm like, you know, I, I, no, of course it's so much harder to, to live the advice though. I will say bean sugar has made me a better person because it's like when I'm, when I'm writing a letter to somebody saying, you know, no, it's okay to set boundaries or, or yes, it's, you can tell the truth, or I know that this is going to be scary, but you can do it. I'm also saying it to myself. And, and I do think too, like what you said earlier about, you know, if you could talk to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself? And and almost always what people say is you want to go back to that teenage self or that 20 something self and say, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You are okay. And as you said, that's almost impossible to believe when you are at a time of your life where things don't feel okay, where you feel insecure or scared or uncertain or fill in the blank. And what, you know, so I think that that question is almost an impossible one. The, the, the way that I have found to reach people and specifically my own teenagers, but I would say young people in general, but people, let me just say of all ages is, is to validate them, to say like, I know right now it doesn't feel okay, but trust me when I say it's going to feel different someday. And that that is different than just being like, don't worry about it, you'll be okay. Like I think when people feel seen and heard and recognized, it gives them just a little bit of footing. I, I remember this this time I when I was a teenager, I was in love. I had a serious relationship with this boy named Jeff. He was my first love, my first lover. And of course, you know, I was a teenager. And so that the adults around me could have easily sort of just made that kind of cute or made fun of it. And I went on vacation with my family. 
one summer. And so I was away from my boyfriend. I missed him. And I was in the swimming pool with my mom and this kind of pop song came on over the speakers. It was a love song. And I, my mom looked at me and she could see the look on my face. I was listening intently to this love song. And I was thinking about my boyfriend and my mom just looked at me with this, this deep understanding. And she said, are you thinking about Jeff? You must miss him so much. And I never forgot that moment because it was, it was such a big moment in my life where I felt like, oh my gosh, my mother is validating my experience, my mature love that I have for this boy, even though it was totally immature. I was 16 and I had so much to learn that she honored whatever, what my reality was in that moment is like deep validation. And I think our teens really need that so much. I that That is whenever I need to try to open a door of communication with my kids, instead of lecturing and telling them how they should feel or how it's going to be, if I just simply state back to them what I see and what I believe they might be feeling or I might be hearing from them in that moment, they almost always open up to me then. Your kids are, are, are in teens now, but I heard Michelle Obama recently talking about how she had 10 years of struggling in her marriage the most. And it was when her children were younger Mm -hmm. and when they were small children. And I guess I wonder what, what were those, were those years like for you writing and, you know, wild is coming out. And I experienced it when I was writing a book earlier, late last year and early this year. And it was really hard. I mean, I wrote at the beginning, I was still writing through some postpartum depression, but it was so hard to go to work having two small kids. It was, I mean, mentally, it was one of the greatest challenges I've ever faced. And so I wonder, you know, what was the nitty gritty of that for you? As far as, you know, what did the day look like? Did you just lock yourself away for five hours to do these things that nourished you so like being able to write and tell your story and, and, and move that stuff out of your body for, for yourself and for your children. Yeah, it was hard. I mean, my husband is a documentary filmmaker. So here we were two struggling artists and neither one of us came for money or had any family support in terms of even childcare. And so, and we both had these gigantic student loans that honestly we were paying off into our 40s. On my 44th birthday is when I paid off my student loan for my undergraduate years. And we were struggling. I mean, we were really broke and we didn't have a nanny and we didn't have much in the way of childcare. And we just had each other. And there were so many times where I I would think, I can't do this. You know, this is crazy. Like, what are we doing? I should just give this, give this writing thing up and get a job with it has health insurance and, you know, something like the, the, the normal things you're supposed to do. And I kept saying, just hold on a little longer. And, and I, you know, if I was lucky, I would lock myself away for five hours. Usually it was more like an hour here, an hour there. Every once in a while, when I was writing wild, I would go check into like a hotel. I'd, I'd go on like hotel.com and find like the cheapest hotel within like a few miles of my house. <laughs> and I would check in for two nights. That's so much of how wild got written. My Angela wrote like that too. Yeah. Like, binge writing. Seasonally check into a hotel, take yeah. all the art off the wall, bring like a bottle of whiskey, a Bible and a yellow notepad. <laughs> That's great. But yeah. And so I patched it together. And it was very hard. And there were lots of fights between my me and my husband. On, on one hand, we are deeply, profoundly supportive of each other. And I mean, I couldn't do anything without him. He's an amazing person. But it's also true that when you're under that much stress, you know, you, you, you know, there are fights and there, there are times that you think like, what are we doing? Like, is this going to tear us apart? But we stuck together. And And then, of course, when Wild was published, it was the first time in my life, honestly, the first time in my life where I had financial security. I actually could afford to pay my bills without going through all kinds of gymnastics and, and, you know, maybe getting my garbage service cut off. Like I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm being actual. You know, as a kid, I lived every year of my childhood below the poverty line. And as an adult, you know, I had to piece it together and wild success brought me to like solid footing financially. And that did change a lot of things, but I will tell you what's, what's interesting is it's still hard. It's really to be 
a parent to raise kids and also be trying to do the kind of work that we're doing is, well, I would say probably the kind of work anyone does, right? It's just like, it's amazing how you keep the, you know, the ship afloat. And for me too, like these teenage years, my, my daughter was at the end of eighth grade and my son was at the end of ninth grade when school shut down and the pandemic really profoundly altered their, their, you know, adolescence because suddenly they had online school for more than a year. They were being told they couldn't, you know, see their peers and all of those things that, that our youth went through during that time. And I found myself as a mother in a situation with my kids where they needed me in different ways than they had needed me when they were younger, but they needed me pretty much as, as, you know, as much as they, you know, it wasn't like suddenly they were on their own. I was really in pretty intensive parenting mode for these last few years. I think one of the biggest struggles in general is just enoughness. I hear that the most from my readers and and I, I write about that a lot myself, this idea that, you know, what makes us feel like we're enough, you know, how do we get to the point where we can validate ourselves also and, and feel like, you wake up and your first thought is I'm enough, you know, before you've done anything to earn it. And I think in parenting, you feel constant, not enoughness. And then you feel like there's not enough you can give to help their experiences almost when it's tough. And so how do you manage kind of, I guess, enoughness within yourself and, and in, 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 in your family? I don't know. I mean, I, I I know that what does help me is to tr- to try to remember to be as gentle with myself as I am with others. I don't expect anyone anyone else to be perfect. <laughs> I, I and so why would I why would I imagine that I could be if yeah. I know that that's an absolutely impossible standard, you know, when it comes to my judgment of anyone else. And I do think that you know, it's it's really important to to forgive yourself. You're not always going to say the right thing. You're sometimes going to react angrily or selfishly, or you're going to feel like, you know, down when you know that you actually have so much to be grateful for. And the thing that eases my mind about that is it's really important, I think, to show our kids that, to show our kids that like, yeah, yeah, you know, (laughs) I'm not perfect either. Sometimes I too, you know, react in anger or or I'm petty or, and, you know, and it allows them, if you can, again, bring those things into the conversation. I I think one of the most important things that I've ever done, the conversations I've had with my kids are me apologizing, me saying, Mm -hmm. I wish I had said a different thing because what you do is you're modeling for them what is true for all of us, that we are imperfect, but that we can do better. Like we can make amends. We can bring consciousness to the things that maybe we do unconsciously that aren't the best things. And I, I always try to, you know, just remind my kids to love that kind of contradiction and complexity in themselves as well. That is so beautiful and helpful. I want to thank you so much for taking the time out. And I'm so grateful. It was so fun to talk to you, Cleo. Thanks for tuning in with my chat with Cheryl Strait. Tiny Beautiful Things is now out on Hulu. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to The Goop Podcast.